Welcome to the Walder Sportscast with your host, Chris Walder. Welcome everyone to episode 29, the Marcus Camby of the Walder Sportscast. I'm your host, Chris Walder, and you can find me and follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Walder Sports. And while you're at it, please leave this show a rating and review because it does help out the podcast a great deal. Before we get underway here, I just want to send love to a couple of podcasts celebrating some major milestones this week. First of all, the No Dunks podcast is clearly a staple of the NBA podcast game. J.E. Skeets, Tass Mellis, Trey Kirby, Lee Ellis, and of course Matt and J.D. as well. Anyone currently doing a basketball podcast has likely been influenced by No Dunks at some time or another. I certainly have been, and they're celebrating 15 years this week, so a big congratulations to them. And not to be outdone, of course, the Dishes and Dimes podcast celebrates one year this week as well. We've had Amon and Yasmin Duwale on the Walder Sportscast in the past, and I'd certainly love to have more hosts from that show on as well. They've received a ton of support from the online basketball community, and deservedly so. I mean, they just had Jose Calderon on their anniversary show, which was really cool. So congratulations to them. It's only the beginning for them, and I'm excited to see what's next. I have both of those podcasts in my rotation, as I do the Pound the Rock basketball podcast. And I'm fortunate enough to have one of their hosts on with me today to talk some hoops. I've interviewed Joseph Cacharo in the past, and today I'll be chatting it up with Joe Wolfon, who's also an NBA and tennis features writer for The Score in downtown Toronto. You may remember from previous shows that I've touted Wolfon as one of the best writers in the country, and I truly believe that to be the case. I may have even called him the Zach Lowe of Canada recently, which he thought was too much hype, but I call it like I see it. But before I bring Wolfond on, if you haven't already, after you give a listen to today's show, of course, go back in the vault and check out my last episode when I had on Joshua Howe, who currently writes for both Sportsnet.ca and Raptors Republic. A really enjoyable interview talking the current state of the Toronto Raptors, along with the fallout from the James Harden to the Brooklyn Nets trade, so go give that podcast a listen when you can. With all that being said, though, Joe Wolfond will be with me after this quick break, so keep it locked. Joining me now is Joe Wolfond, an NBA and tennis features writer for The Score in downtown Toronto, as well as a co-host for the Pound the Rock NBA podcast alongside previous guest, Joseph Cacharo. Wolfond, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Thank you so much for having me, man. Uh, as I was telling you before we started recording, it's really nice to hear your voice. It's been a really long time, and this is a real treat for me. We've been talking for a while now. We had a lot of Disney talk sprinkled into our conversation prior to recording. We talked about marriage. You know, uh, hopefully I can get some marriage advice somewhere down the road. But I mean, if, like you said, it's obviously been a while since you and I last spoke. 
How have you been holding up during these like these crazy times with the pandemic? Because, of course, you still have your writing. You still have the podcast. I must think that kind of helps you keep busy during a lockdown. I think under the circumstances, it's really hard for me to complain. Like, it's not ideal. There are a lot of things that I miss, you know, including my friends and family and uh, certain activities that I used to take for granted and uh, I get cabin fever and there's a lot of things about it that have been tough but no like no more so for me than for any other person and I'm fortunate enough to have a job and you know a roof over my head and I I know so many people are really really struggling right now and I, I just feel incredibly grateful to at least, you know, have those things, those comforts. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I try to just like keep things in perspective, I think. Yeah, you know, focus on work and try and get as much exercise as I can. Obviously, you know, getting to spend a, a lot of time with my wife, which has been nice in its own way. So yeah, it's, it's not perfect. It's what it is. But uh, I think, again, under the circumstances, I've been okay. How about you, buddy? I'm doing all right. You know, I'm out here in uh, in Lindsay, Ontario, you know, a very small town. There's not a lot to do pretty much most days, and that goes without the lockdown, without the pandemic. It's very barren, you know, coming from downtown Toronto and Scarborough, where it's very lively, working at the score with you like I did, and you exit the building at like 1.30 in the morning, and there's like a whole bustle of people in downtown Toronto. That's not the case here in Lindsay. You know, the population is very old. You know, I stick out like a sore thumb wolf on I mean, yeah. I mean, I... <laughs> You're not used to the small town vibes. I can see it. Uh, it's it's true. I, I am a big city boy. So I, I guess I blend in rather than sticking out like a sore thumb. Although my hair has gotten like ridiculously large. So really, it's get it's getting harder and harder to uh, keep a low profile because back, back when I was uh, high school aged renegade and thought it was cool to just never cut my hair. I used to grow yeah. it like I have super curly hair. Um <laughs> what some might call a Jufro. And <laughs> and so I basically used to grow it out. And, and it has, like, it's really curly. So it's got pretty solid structural integrity. Yeah. And I would just grow it out basically until it couldn't support itself anymore and just, like, collapsed and turned into more of, like, a jerry curl, like, down to my shoulders. <laughs> and that's how I would know that it was time to get it cut. And, and it's sort of approaching those levels again. It's it's uh, It's not quite ready to collapse, but it's getting unruly for sure. Well, you'd be surprised to see me because when you and I worked together, I obviously, I had a shaved head. I couldn't grow any facial hair. Now I'm the complete opposite because no one is seeing me anymore besides my fiance and our immediate family. So I'm growing out my hair for, you know, the engagement photos that we're hoping to take next month. And I'm trying to get a little scruff on my face as well. I look like a completely new Walter. Well, yeah, I mean, hit me up with a picture, man, because I think that's something (laughs) I need to see. I'm definitely used to you being the... uh... What, what's the euphemism that you prefer? <laughs> the, the cue ball? Yeah, there you go. I mean, I showed my, I showed a photo to... Uh, I mean, I have photos on my Instagram and whatnot, but Jonathan Zavetta, one of your co-workers and a former one of mine, he saw my hair and was like, man, you've been willingly shaving your head for years and you've had hair this whole time? I can't believe it. People would kill to have a full head of hair. What are you doing, Chris? Yeah, I, I definitely didn't think that you had a full head of hair. <laughs> well, I, I shocked the world, yeah. man. You, you're, you're bald by choice. That's, that's an interesting one. 
I know. It's just, you know what? When I go to the bathroom, I just, I don't like doing a hell of a lot. I like going in and out in the morning. And if I had hair, there's a whole process to having a full head of hair. And I was totally against that. But you know what? Now, I, it's definitely taken some years off of my look. And my fiance approves as well. So that's the, the number one opinion that I care about the most. I mean, that's that's the one that matters. So I'm happy <laughs> for you. I was going to say as well, like, have you come around on the Zach Lowe of Canada title that I bestowed upon you on Twitter? Because I know you were no, pretty much man, against come it. come on. Yeah, I'm vehemently against it. Like, you can't, you can't just be throwing comparisons like that out willy-nilly. I mean, Zach Lowe is probably the best in the business, maybe the best to ever do it as far as nitty-gritty X's and O's basketball analysis, the way that he can translate it into layman's terms, the way that he sees and understands the game, and also just like his aptitude as a writer and as a podcaster like he's he's the best there is and i don't i don't even want that comparison hanging over me man that's like way too much to live up to and as i say all the time life is about managing expectations and <laughs> i'm gonna try and manage people's expectations here by getting as far away from that moniker as i can well, I'm a talking hype machine here on the Walder Sportscast. I like hyping up my guest. And, uh, you know, despite your disapproval, I stand by the sentiment that you are certainly on that level, in my opinion. And, of course, that brings me to your latest piece for The Score, Joe, which I read yesterday. And you highlighted three players who've made a noticeable leap this season. And one of those players is Toronto Raptors center Chris Boucher, who have been very complimentary of on my Twitter account, you know, a pleasant surprise for Raptors fans like ourselves who, you know, saw the front court take a pretty massive hit this offseason when they lost both Serge Ibaka and Marcus Gasol. So, Wolfon, from what you're seeing, you know, what is Boucher doing this year that he may not have been showing in the past for whatever reason that's making him such a beast on both ends? Or is it just a matter of him you know, having more playing time, more of a rule. So this is kind of him excelling because of that. Well, I do think that's part of it. And not just like the opportunity to, you know, put up more numbers and more minutes, but just playing more, I think, has given him a better feel for the game. And I think just like a little bit more confidence and, and room to play through some of the mistakes that he still makes. Okay. Um, You know, without without getting inside his own head or worrying that it's going to get him yanked because there really is nobody else, right? Like he is... I still don't even really conceive of him as a center just because of how willowy he is. But on this roster, he's a center and he is the best center that they have. So <laughs> I don't think he needs to be looking over his shoulder worrying about somebody taking his playing time. Like they need him and he has made himself indispensable to this team. Like all credit to him for that. Uh, so, so I do think that's part of it. You know, the one thing that stands out is the shooting, which is unsustainable like he's not going to keep shooting 48 percent from three of course but but i think it's reasonable to think you know he might settle in around like 38 39 which would be a huge improvement from like the 31 32 that he shot the last couple of years and that just makes a huge difference as, as far as being able to space the floor you know garnering respect from opposing teams like they need to guard him out there and when teams need to guard you out there it just opens up so many other avenues not just for him, but for the guys that he's playing with. And so I think he's done a good job kind of leveraging the threat of that shot. Like the one thing that I, I love about the way that he plays is like, he really shoots it with no hesitation. Right. And and no conscience. And I think 
that's something the Raptors really need. There are times when their offense gets bogged down because of hesitation, and I think one thing you can rely on Boucher for is just um, to be decisive when he catches the ball. And 99% of the time, that decisiveness manifests in him trying to find a scoring opportunity for himself. Like, he is not a guy who passes the ball very often. <laughs> right. But that's okay because he is scoring the ball with a tremendous level of efficiency. So, you know, as I wrote in that piece, like, Chris Boucher doesn't pass basically ever, but if he <laughs> if he's going to continue to score at this rate, then like you don't really need him to, right? Yeah. So the shooting's been big. Um, he's done an unbelievable job as the role man in pick and roll uh, as a finisher. And I think as much as he still is very twiggy by NBA standards, I mean, him and Kyle Lowry basically are the same weight. Uh, oh, wow. Your center, your center and your point guard weigh the same. Uh, yeah. So that should give you some idea. I mean, Lowry is maybe a, a little bit on, on the heavier side for a guy his size, but like he's six feet tall in shoes and weighs the same amount as the Raptors' nominal center. So he's still very slight of frame, but I do think he's put on some extra muscle, and I think that's helping him finish through contact at the rim. He's getting to the free throw line a lot more and just generally putting pressure on opposing defenses with how hard he rolls and how effective he's gotten at finishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the athleticism's always been there, but I think I think his hands have gotten better and his understanding of space has gotten better. Like. He's just, to me, looked very alert and keen when it comes to finding pockets of space that he can flash into. Being a release valve where he knows exactly where he needs to go to receive a pass to essentially give one of the guards an escape route. Timing up his roles better so that he can catch it and essentially finish without having to take a dribble. Uh, I just think his feel for the game has improved and it's manifested in so many different areas. Um, And the other one is at the defensive end, right? Where he's always been an incredible shot blocker and and his length and athleticism has just allowed him to do that. Uh, And he's always had a good sense of timing when it comes to blocking shots. But as far as just his defensive fundamentals, like those to me have improved immeasurably you know his positioning Mm -hmm. the way that he is sort of angling his body to prevent ball handlers from blowing by him like he's he's been adequate switching onto guys on the perimeter leading the league in blocked three pointers like his closeouts um and this is something that maybe worries me actually about him a little (laughs) bit is he always just closes out so hard to the three-point line and he's not one of these guys who uh, you know the textbook fundamental closeout is you want to chop your steps so you're not flying by a shooter Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris Boucher does not do that. <laughs> He's out there trying to block the shot, trying to fly yeah. by. And the thing is, ultimately, I think the book is going to be out on that. And you're going to start to see, and we've already seen a couple times, like that game against the Blazers that they lost, Carmelo hit a big three late in that game just by pump faking Boucher like into the yeah. seats. And I think we'll start to see that happen more and he's going to maybe have to adjust. But for now, like the, the sight of him closing out to the three-point line, I think really does affect a shooter. And so like one of the stats I wrote about in that post was that three-point shooters were shooting 25% when he was the nearest defender. Like it mm-hmm. e- even when he's not blocking those threes, which he does more than anybody in the league, he's still planting a seed of doubt or fear or hesitation in a shooter's mind that's affecting their release. It's it's speeding them up. It's it's making them press a little bit and and so there's value in that. And and I think the interesting thing to see is, okay, when maybe the league starts to get a better handle on him, can he adjust? You know, can he find a happy medium between the aggressiveness and maybe borderline recklessness that 
in some ways makes him who he is and makes him really effective. Uh, can he find a balance between that and just sort of like a more fundamental approach that's going to allow him to to continue to be effective when teams start to scout for him better? Do you buy into the notion that Boucher's emergence led to Alex Len getting waived? Because I understand that Toronto wants to play smaller and faster, but at the same time, Wolfon, it doesn't hurt to have a big body like Lenz on the roster. You know, he, he's proven he can stretch the floor a bit. We've seen our friend William Liu on Twitter acknowledging his big moment as a Raptor was hitting corner threes against the New York Knicks. And Len is also six fouls at the end of the day. Do you think that that storyline is a bit overtold in the sense that it was just Boucher becoming this stud overnight that kind of led to Alex Len being expendable? There's a case to be made and that's probably backed up by the fact that he immediately went and signed with the Wizards, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, happy to see him find an NBA home so quickly after getting waived. I do think, like, it was strange because he has a guaranteed contract, and you don't often see that, even if, okay, you have this guy who's emerged and you don't necessarily need a third center anymore. Well, like, you have a guy on a guaranteed contract, you never know what's going to happen with injuries, especially this season, when, you know, you're always like a fingernail away from potentially having a COVID outbreak and and losing like half your roster you need insurance like having a third big man even if you're not going to play him most nights can still be pretty important and so I thought that was a little bit strange if they weren't planning on filling that roster spot and maybe they are still planning on doing so but I do think I understand it from a perspective of if the franchise just wanted to do right by him he was saying, look, I'm not playing. And Nick Nurse is saying, look, I'm not going to play you because Boucher is just way better. Yeah. Uh, and as sort of a gesture of goodwill, they're like, you, you know, we're going to wave you and let you sign with another team. Then, then that would make some sense to me. But I do still think that they are going to need a third big guy, especially because, as I've said before, like I, I still prefer Boucher as a power forward than as a center. Okay. Or at least I'd like to see him splitting his time between those two positions. So I, I think they're going to have to find somebody uh whether it's via signing or via trade to fill that spot in some capacity another guy you looked at in that piece is jeremy grant and i got into a mini debate on twitter last night with people debating the most improved player race this season and of course it's still very early you know i saw names like colin sexton and boucher was thrown in there christian wood and of course grant but you look at detroit wolfond and you see a team just ravaged by injuries and and stars who've slowed down like a blake griffin Derek rose is grant in your opinion, merely taking advantage of a team that's arguably the very worst in basketball right now and kind of excelling due to this larger role? Or will these ultimately be empty numbers in your mind? Like, could could you see Grant playing this well in a different situation? Well, yeah, I mean, I can't. Like, this well, I guess, it's relative because it, it his role does matter. And so if he was playing the same role that he was playing with the Nuggets last year, yeah, and he was just doing it a little bit better because he's improved as a player, then I don't know how you quantify that. Like, would you say that he's playing as well as he is now, but just in a scaled down role? Like the the role that he's playing fundamentally changes what he is as a player. Sure. And part of the reason that I find his leap so impressive is that he has become a completely different player and he has become a player that I didn't think he was capable of becoming. And this is one of the reasons that I specifically wanted to write about him and like kind of the same thing with Boucher. Like there are a number of people that I could have picked for that piece. The guys that I did pick, as I kind of specified, were guys that were making what I 
call a mid-career leap Mm -hmm. where you think they're one thing and they turn into something else. And to me, like the players that interest me the most, the teams that interest me the most, like the storylines that interest me the most, and the ones that I ultimately find myself wanting to write about most are the ones where I have just been completely wrong about something. And so like I was critical of the Pistons for signing Jeremy Grant to that contract in the offseason. I was critical of Jeremy Grant for, you know, he had that same deal on the table from Denver and was in what I thought was a perfect situation for him because I saw him as being a high-end role player who whose, you know, best spot was essentially going to be being a 3 and D guy on a contending team rather than trying to take the reins and be like a primary scoring option for a rebuilding team. And I was completely wrong because he has become a number one option and he's done it with like no drop off in his scoring efficiency. He's doing stuff that he has never done before. He's one of the highest volume isolation players in the league and he's scoring in ISO scenarios at like a top five rate. Like he's one (laughs) of the best ISO scorers in the league. And, you know, maybe that's not going to continue, but his dribble drive game, like his shooting off of the bounce... His, his playmaking has been a lot slower in coming. Like, I think that's the one thing where he hasn't fully adjusted to his new role as, like, a number one guy. But, yeah. But, I mean, they're running their offense through him, and he's become a, a self-creator in a way that I really didn't think he was capable of. And he's averaging more than 25 points a game when, like, his career high before this, I think, was, like, 13. And he's taking, you know, more than twice as many field goal attempts as, as he has ever taken in any season before. And he was doing that you know, while remaining an extremely efficient scorer. Like, that is so, so hard to do. And and that's just a leap that is just more important than almost anything else, I think. is like the, mm-hmm. the leap from being a, a complimentary player to being a legitimate number one scorer is something that you don't see very often. And that's why, like, if I was voting today, I would vote for him for most improved because nobody has changed who they are as a player more than he has Um, and it's not just about the change it's the fact that he's done it and been so effective in the new role that he's taken on Jeremy Grant, Chris Boucher, CJ McCollum. Of course, it's an amazing piece. And if you haven't checked it out, listeners, I recommend that you check it out on the Score mobile app if you haven't downloaded it already. Wolfon, I also wanted to ask you about what was a pretty big story coming out of the NBA on TNT last night. And it was a post-game interview between Shaquille O'Neal and Utah Jazz guard Donovan Mitchell. Uh, you are one of my favorite players, but you don't have what it takes to get to the next level. I said it on purpose. I wanted you to hear it. What do you have to say about that? All right. That's it. <laughs> that's it? All right. That's it. Okay, cool. I, I mean, I want you I, to hear I, it. I've been hearing, well, Shaq, I've been hearing that since my rookie year. You know, I'm just going to get okay, better well, and do what I do. Good. At the end well, of the day. You. Well, that's what I want you to hear you say. Yes, Love sir. your game, brother. Keep it up. Appreciate it. But in your mind, Wolfond, was it just Shaquille O'Neal being Shaq in the moment, or did he cross the line here by making comments of that nature? I don't know. I, I don't know about crossing the line. Like, that's not, I guess that's not really for me to say. Like, I didn't think it crossed any line. Uh, like, I didn't love it, but, yeah, you know, I don't necessarily think it should get him, like, pulled off of the air. Uh I think you could make a case that he should get pulled off of the air for just like not being good at his job generally because he doesn't really come prepared. He doesn't really analyze the game from 
a particularly thoughtful perspective. I think, you know, so much of what he does is just kind of like dump on current players and talk about how much better than him, yeah, (laughs) better than them he is. And like, that's something that I don't particularly appreciate about his hesitate to even call it analysis. Like it's, it's sports TV talk. Like he's there as an entertainer more so than he is as an analyst. And, and if that's what TNT wants him to be doing, then that's really their prerogative. Uh, If they want to keep throwing him out in the air because he entertains people and he gets people talking and even something like last night, I'm sure they're fine with the fact that like, even if people are unhappy with Shaq, like as long as people are talking about that incident, that's perfectly fine with Turner, right? Like, yeah. But yeah, I mean, if I don't know, like, I, I don't think it's, it's not like so out of bounds. Like I can see Donovan Mitchell being frustrated by that. But like, what's the like, what's the real downside at the end of the day? Like Donovan Mitchell's pissed off. And I think Shaq's the one who comes out looking worse in that. So I, I don't really have like a huge issue with it, aside from the fact that I just like, I mean, I, I haven't really watched inside the NBA for a while. Like it just doesn't do it for me. But yeah. I know a lot of people do really enjoy watching it just for the entertainment value. It would be nice and I would prefer it if they actually used their platform to like try and educate people about the game. But that's clearly not what the show is designed to do. And I mean, that's fine, I guess. Like there are plenty of other places that you can go um, online at least to, to find high quality basketball analysis. We've seen this before, of course, with with Christian Wood, although to a lesser degree when Shaq said he was just unfamiliar with his game. When, when you watch and listen to former players in the broadcast booth or even as analysts in general, Wolfon, do you get the sense that a majority of them are up to date with today's game, you know, watching a majority of the teams, knowing the players inside and out? Or is it just the NBA on TNT crew that kind of blatantly flaunt their lack of knowledge? I honestly don't know. Like, I, I don't really watch, I, I don't really watch any kind of like basketball shows on TV. Okay. So, so I can't actually speak to that. Uh, I, I, more so know from like the clips that I see like floating around Twitter. Like yeah. That's kind of my only access point to inside the NBA right now is just seeing those clips. And like, yeah, there are a lot of them where those guys kind of almost proudly talk about how little they know about what's going on <laughs> in the league right now. Yeah. And I, and I understand people being disappointed in that and, and just like wanting better from uh, their, their pundits mm. and, I guess for me, it's just like I I recognized that a long time ago that that's not what I was looking for. There was definitely a time in my life where I where I loved inside the NBA and did get a lot of entertainment value out of it. But it's been a while since I felt compelled to watch it. And I just feel like, you know, I've sort of curated my NBA content intake to the point that like I know where I'm going for for quality analysis. And if I want entertainment, like I know where to go for that too. (laughs) And so I like, at the end of the day, I do think it's sort of up to the consumer to decide, like, you know, if people just sort of stopped watching inside the NBA because they thought it was trash, then yeah, Turner might have to rethink some things and maybe pull Shaq off the air and maybe tell Chuck that he needs to smarten up and start actually watching the games and know who plays for which teams. Yeah. But yeah, I th- I think for me like I there's more than enough quality NBA content out there. Like there's too yeah. much frankly. I have a hard time keeping up with it. 
But you do believe there's a place in the media industry for former players with maybe big personalities because Shaq, it probably doesn't get much bigger than his. And you see other guys like uh, Kendrick Perkins, for example, who kind of makes the media rounds as of late. A big, strong voice, a, a lot of strong, hot take opinions. But And, you know, maybe to a lesser extent when you're seeing a guy like Reggie Miller or uh, Chris Webber in the broadcast booth, maybe it's not everyone's cup of tea. Maybe most fans prefer the analytical side uh from their broadcaster but you know guys like that they do have a role and i don't think it needs to be one or the other is the thing you know like inside the nba could still be goofy and funny and still offer legitimate insights into the game you know yeah like and and that's maybe the thing is that okay like like why did you decide that that the one has to preclude the other like Mm -hmm. I, w- I wish that they could find room, I guess, to do both. And then maybe I would be inclined to watch it. But uh, but but there are former players who make really good analysts. Like, I think Richard Jefferson is great uh, as a color commentator. Draymond Green, like, when, when he was kind of part, yeah. you know, he was, he was a guest panelist on Inside the NBA during the playoffs last year. Like, that's when I was actually, like, wanting to tune in because he's bringing, like, legit razor-sharp insights and it felt so out of place on that show, you know, like it, it had been so long since I'd seen any of those guys even confronted with something that resembled like a salient point about, you know, today's style of play in, in mm-hmm. the game. Like, I think th- there are tons of former players who I feel like have really valuable insights to add to the discourse. And obviously, you know, anybody who's played the game at that level, including Shaq and Charles and Kenny, like all those guys know way more about basketball than I ever will. Uh, it just seems to me like they've kind of given up on, on on doing the real like analytical grunt work, I guess. And again, that's that's their prerogative, but but I don't think that it needs to be one or the other. How do you think you would have handled the situation if that was uh, you in Donovan Mitchell's shoes getting grilled like that by Shaquille O'Neal? How would have Joe Wolfon gone through that interview? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> would have told him I didn't think that he had what it took to to hack it as an on-air personality. There you go. That's the slander I'm looking for here. But like that's like Shaq has this idea of himself, and, and Shaq's like to me one of the ten greatest players of all time. Like I have oh for sure all the reverence in the world for his playing career. He was insane, and so I, I think I guess you could say he comes by it honestly, but. He, he seems to fancy himself as this tough love, almost like a father figure to these players. Like he did the same thing with Joel Embiid where he like challenged him to, to be more aggressive in the post. Yeah. And then, you know, Embiid went out and like had a huge game against the Celtics who just like didn't have a center who could guard him. And, and Shaq was like taking credit saying he lit a fire under Embiid's ass. And, and I think that gave him this like inflated sense of his own importance in like these players stories and it made him feel like it was his job to motivate them and i don't know it's just a little bit weird to me and like his whole vendetta against rudy gobert is weird to me (laughs) the way that he treats his current crop of players is something that does sort of rub me the wrong way a little bit because that's just in general when it comes to former players that's something that does really grind my gears is when they're like incapable of just showing appreciation for the players that came after them and whether it's just sort of jealousy you know pettiness insecurity whatever it happens to be you know something prevents them from just like appreciating those players and giving them 
they're due. And and maybe that is where like you start to get into an issue when, you know, Shaq is one of the people who's supposed to be selling the NBA to fans. And if what he's peddling instead are these sort of false narratives about how these players couldn't have done anything to stop him in his prime uh, and don't have what it takes to win. Like, I don't know if that's actually doing a service to the NBA product as a whole. Well, who knows if a guy like Shaq would even be seeing the floor in this day and age, in this modern era of basketball, uh, with a guy like Alex Len providing no value. I'm not trying to compare Alex Len and Shaquille O'Neal, of course, but uh, it's a very three-point-centric game these days. So Shaq was dominant in his time. That remains to be seen if he would be, do the same in 2021. But Shaq, uh, Shaq would have absolutely destroyed in this NBA. Like, you think so, I, eh? I think that's such a misconception. First of all, like young Shaq was a, a ridiculous athlete. Uh, I mean, he always was, but like, I think people have this image of him sort of later in his career when he got a lot heavier. Yeah. Um, but like magic era Shaq was like a, a physical specimen. Like he wasn't, I think, you know, in later years, you didn't really see the same muscle definition and it was like a combination of raw strength, but also like a little bit of pudge. And he would kind of routinely show up to training camp completely out of shape and slowly play his way into shape over the course <laughs> of the season. But sure. But in Orlando, he was just like, I mean, I don't think the NBA has ever seen like a, just a raw athlete like that in terms of pure power. And like he, he wasn't just strong, he was fast and he had incredible footwork. So I think, you know, the spacing in the game today and, you know, the fact that it's, you know, the, the, the changing of the sort of defensive rules that allow teams to zone up and kind of double big men on the catch rather than you know, having to wait essentially until they have the ball to actually send a hard double team at them. Like that would have yeah. made it maybe a little bit more difficult for him, but he also would have been playing in more space and, and he would have been playing in an era where because so much of the league is designed to play kind of this like three point heavy open court style, there isn't so much of an emphasis on big behemoths, which opens up opportunities for guys who can actually mash in the post to like yeah. take advantage and become their own sort of it's not it's not to say they become like a market inefficiency but like Joel Embiid and Nikola Jokic like part of what makes them so effective is like they're two of and maybe the two the last two like true post up bigs yeah who can just absolutely work guys in the post um, because there there aren't really a lot of players in the league right now where that are designed to stop people in the post because it's because the post game has been phased out so i think like Shaq in today's day and age would just like absolutely maul people but guys like Embiid and Jokic of course can also stretch the floor like they have a jumper they have a three-point shot would you almost kind of say that a more modern example of Shaq in today's game would be you know Dwight Howard with the Orlando Magic you just station him in the post and just ha surround him with shooters no, because Dwight, and don't get me wrong, like prime Dwight was absolutely incredible. People forget that. Like he was amazing, but but Dwight never had anything resembling the post moves that Shaq did. Um, oh, yeah. And, and he's also just like not as big. Like Dwight, he's jacked, but he's like 6'9", you know, Shaq was like... I don't know, so what, 7'1", seven, 7'2"? Seven, yeah, a juggernaut. And, and, like, just, like, had better footwork than Dwight. Like, it, it was so, sort of a completely different thing. Like, Dwight was always best as just, like, a pick-and-roll dive man, uh, and he never really wanted to fully buy into that role. He wanted the post touches, and I think that held him back in a lot of ways. But, but Shaq was truly unstoppable in the post. I, I don't think there's any era that he wouldn't have totally dominated. 
I just want to uh, quickly transition here because I tried this segment with our good friend Will Segear during our NBA season preview podcast here on the Walder Sportscast, and I feel like we're deep enough in the season to have a solid enough gauge on certain things, so it, it's pretty easy and straightforward, Will Fawn. It's likely and unlikely. I throw some scenarios at you, and you just quickly tell me what you think, okay? Okay, hit me. Likely or unlikely, Colin Sexton, coming off that amazing performance against the Brooklyn Nets, is named to the Eastern Conference All-Star team. I think it's likely at this point. I, I His shooting numbers are going to come down, but look, he this is another guy that I've been wrong about. Like I, um, A lot I've of us have. Been, <laughs> I've never been a big Colin Sexton guy, and... I wasn't like giving up on him after his rookie season. Like I remember even saying at the time that like rookie guards, especially like their their first seasons are never really representative of the players that they turn into. But I just think, you know, after his first couple of years, it was, he just like wasn't showing a ton of growth as a playmaker or as a defender. And I, I thought that he had a chance to be a good scorer, but I'd never envisioned him a becoming the kind of scorer that he's seemingly become this season yeah or rounding out his game to the point that uh, you know even becoming a good scorer would make him like a, the kind of player that you'd want to build around but that's changed this year like he's still to me he's almost more of a shooting guard than a point guard like his size maybe pigeonholes him as a point guard but he he's more of a just a pure scorer than a lead playmaker but his playmaking has gotten better i think he's making like more proactive passes uh, and not just like passing as a last resort, which I think is what he's done in the past. He's he's kind of seeking ways to manipulate the defense rather, rather than just being reactive, uh, responding to what the defense throws at him. And I think he's been a lot better as a defender this year. Uh, like he, he you know, you, you take the ridiculously efficient scoring, the way that he shot the ball. Yeah. And, and the fact that he is doing it for a team that is exceeding expectations and coming through in big moments. Like, yeah, like... Th- it's going to be tough because suddenly there are maybe too many good players in the East and, and like some really good ones are going to be left off. Like that hasn't been the case for a really long time. Yeah. Uh, you know, ordinarily you have to scrounge for those end of roster spots, but yeah, I think at this point you have to say it's likely that he gets there. Likely or unlikely, Wolfon, we discussed him earlier, but Chris Boucher finishes as one of the three candidates for the most improved player award. Um, I know you don't like projecting awards too far in advance, but, you know, I'm throwing you a curveball here. I will say that it is likely. Okay. I, I don't think he's going to win it, but I, I think it's, yeah, it's very plausible that he'll be one of the finalists. I, I think there's always the, the idea that probably a lot of people, even people that cover the league, probably hadn't really watched him play before or didn't know too much about him before this season. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think whether that works in players favor or not and i'm thinking of guys who have won the award recently and been yeah. finalists for the award recently and so i think two guys who are good examples from last year are like duncan robinson and Devonte graham and those guys like boucher came into the season he played less than a thousand total nba minutes those guys had played like way less than him even <laughs> and were completely unknown commodities whereas boucher i think had at least been around the league a little bit and like had that season in the G League where he won MVP and Defensive Player of the Year like was maybe a little bit more of a known quantity but I I may be wrong about this but I don't think that either Graham or Robinson wound up as finalists for the award last year yeah I don't think so even though they went from basically like not 
being part of an NBA rotation to, I mean, in Robinson's case, being like a vital contributor to an NBA finals team. And in, in Graham's case, becoming like the number one option for, yeah, like a not very good team, but <laughs> to, to go from being, you know, not a rotation player to being like a lead ball handler. And there's a lot of holes in Devonte Graham's game, but as a, as a pull up three point shooter and a playmaker, like he was legitimately good last year. So the fact that they didn't wind up being finalists maybe tells me that I think in voters' minds, if you're if you're talking about improvement, like how do you measure the improvement of a guy that like you barely even watched before? That's the thing. You know? And I think so that that maybe pushes them more toward guys where it's like, oh, I actually watched like a lot of Jeremy Grant last year, so I can measure the improvement that he's made from last year to this year. Whereas it's like yeah, Chris Boucher came out of nowhere, but I don't know. Maybe he was actually good last year and he just wasn't getting in the rotation. It just makes it a little bit more difficult, I think. Likely or unlikely, and keep in mind they're currently third in defensive rating and first in opponent field goal percentage, three-point percentage, as well as points per game. We'll find the Knicks will finish with a top 10 defense. Unlikely. <laughs> it's the Knicks, right? Look, I... I predicted before the season that they would basically be a league average defense that was kind of I, I put out a series of what I called lukewarm takes before the season started and that was <laughs> one of them so I actually believe in their ability to have a functional defense for the first time in a while because I think Mitchell Robinson is like a legitimately good and potentially game-changing interior defender and I think Barrett's actually pretty decent at the defensive end Nerlens Noel is like uh, as a backup center like they're basically getting between Noel and and Robinson like 48 minutes of quality rim protection and obviously Thibodeau has his reputation as being an excellent defensive coach but if you just look at their shot profile they have I think next to Charlotte basically like the worst defensive shot profile in the league in terms of the value of the kind of shots they give up yeah. they give up like a ridiculously high rate of three-pointers and a ridiculously high rate of shots at the rim. I think there are ways, I guess, to be like a functional defense while giving up those bad shots. There's process stuff that you can do to make sure that even if you're giving up the wrong kind of shots, that you're still suppressing the effectiveness that, that other teams are, are shooting those shots with. But, you know, I think in a lot of cases, the Knicks are just getting lucky. Um, <laughs> like uh, their opponents are shooting, I think, 31% from three-point range. Pretty much every year, I think the team with the lowest opponent three-point shooting percentage comes in around like 34%. So that's definitely going to climb. Okay. I do think their at-rim defense is something that could continue to be very good just because of, you know, having Robinson and Noel. Like that's something that feels more sustainable to me. And I think historically, it's pretty well documented that teams don't actually have a ton of control over how well opponents shoot from three-point range, but I do think they have a lot more control over how well they shoot at the rim. And so that's something that maybe will be more sustainable, which is why I think they can remain average. But top 10, I think, is a bridge too far because they still do have to play a bunch of minus defenders. Mm -hmm. Randall's been way better on that end than, than he's been in the past, so credit to him. He's still not like a high level defender um and if sure. they're gonna play like ob top in big minutes he's not a particularly good defender like all their guys have gotten to the point where they're like okay which is a really positive development for them you know like kevin knox barrett obviously nitalakina who they barely play but he's like an absolute ball hound so they have good defensive players but they also have defensive weak spots and i don't think ultimately that's going to end with them having a top, top uh, a top 10 defense 
And lastly, likely or unlikely, Wolfon, while they're just half a game out of first place, the Milwaukee Bucks will ultimately fail to finish with the best record in the Eastern Conference. Uh, I think I'm going to say that it's likely just because we're, you know, I'm, if I'm betting like the Bucks against the field, it's more likely than not that they won't end up with the top record, especially just because of how stacked the Nets are now. Um, right. Philadelphia is up there. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, this goes back to what I was saying before about just like the strangeness of this season and how like a COVID outbreak can blow everything up. Sure. You don't really know what's going to happen. And so, yeah, like it's it's too unpredictable to say that it's likely that any team is going to finish with a number one record. I feel like, I mean, maybe with the Lakers, it's a safe bet because they've basically been on cruise control and they're still killing teams somehow. Pretty much, yeah. But with the Bucks, I think I expected them to take a step back in the regular season this year anyway. Uh, I think they raised their playoff ceiling, but because of the depth they lost, because I think their bench is way worse than it's been, uh, their defense or their defensive personnel at least is is not what it's been. So I expected them to be a worse regular season team. So like, yeah, I, yeah, I definitely wouldn't be surprised if they don't wind up being number one in the East. Well, buddy, we are coming to a close here. But as I do with all of my guests on the Walder Sportscast, I do have some fun rapid fire questions to send you on your way. All right, hit me. So I listened to your Bold Predictions podcast with uh, Joseph Cacharo, and to recap your picks, you had the Clippers finishing the season with the best record and the Pistons with the worst, the Brooklyn Nets finishing sixth in the Eastern Conference and getting ousted before the conference finals, the Memphis Grizzlies finishing with a better record than the Golden State Warriors, the Atlanta Hawks missing the playoffs, and the Phoenix Suns finishing with a top 10 defense. Any regrets, Wolfon, on any of those bold predictions right now? Well, the Nets pick is obviously looking <laughs> unlikely at this point, but... You didn't know at the time. <laughs> and, um, you know, to be fair, I think that a, a lot of the areas in which I expected them to struggle actually did bear out. I don't think... Like, there were a lot of encouraging signs, too, and, and the biggest and most important one was just, like, how good KD looked. Yeah. So even if they hadn't made the Harden trade, I think I probably would have regretted that one and and changed my tune about their playoff prospects. But obviously now, with them having acquired Harden, that pick is kind of down the toilet. Just a little bit. <laughs> you can't bat a thousand. <laughs> but I, I'm not going to say that I regret it either, because I think if they had just come out like gangbusters, absolutely killing teams and looking like the clear best team in the East, then I don't know if they make that Harden trade. Sure, I think yeah. in some ways, you know, they made that trade because the team, like, they were playing well. And, like, they, I think they've shown that they had a really high ceiling, but there were also a lot of areas in which they were struggling. Uh, and, and a lot of those areas were ones that I foresaw. So... I don't think the process behind that bold prediction was necessarily wrong-headed. I ask everyone this, Wolf on, but I'm curious what you find yourself binge-watching these days, especially during a pandemic when time has unfortunately freed up for a lot of people. That's a great question. I've been watching uh, entirely too much TV. Uh, but <laughs> I, um, so, so my wife had never seen 
The Wire or The Sopranos. And I incidentally had never seen the last season of The Sopranos. Like I had okay. watched the first five seasons probably like a decade ago and for whatever reason just like never watched the sixth one and then too much time had passed. So it just didn't <laughs> make sense to like pick it up 10 years later. But that gave me the opportunity to finally watch the sixth season because we just started that from the beginning and watched the entirety of it. Watched the entirety of The Wire for, you know, for her the first time, for me, probably like the fourth time that I've watched that series. <laughs> I've watched neither. Really? I'm I'm so far behind the ball game here, man. There's so much I have to watch, not just from TV, but from movies as well. It, it would be an embarrassment to publicize the things that I have not watched. I mean, I would put them at the top of your priority list. Like, they're... Oh, definitely. It, the, the hype is totally deserved i know it's like there's <laughs> nothing interesting about saying like the sopranos and the wire are like the two best shows ever i just feel of like of course but the thing is like they really are so okay you should you should just watch them I, um <laughs> yeah i'm trying to like I've, I've binged and really enjoyed a bunch of other series i really liked normal people i don't know if you watched that that's from uh, CBC, right? CBC? No, I think it was uh, BBC. Oh, BBC. Maybe it's just on CBC Gem. I think it's just part of their streaming service. But you would recommend Normal People? Yeah, it's like a miniseries. It's based on a Sally Rooney book. And it's really just like emotionally wrenching in a lot of ways. It's like cathartic in a lot of ways. It's just a, like a really good, well-told story that has two unbelievable performances at the center of it. Okay. So I, I really enjoyed that. I've been watching Search Party. Have you seen that show? Uh, I've heard of it. Well, what is that one about? So it's it starts out as being about there's like this group of friends essentially, and uh, somebody like a girl from their year in university goes missing, and one of them becomes like totally obsessed by the idea of like finding her. Okay. And that's sort of like a jumping off point, and it goes off in like a bunch of pretty surprising and interesting directions and sort of becomes a completely different show along the way but it's like legitimately funny at points and i think like the the character the, the actors sort of that make up the friend group have really good chemistry and i think it's like a really nice balance of uh, like drama and humor mm -hmm. i've been enjoying that quite a bit I'm trying to think what else. I'm sure there's other stuff because, again, I've just been watching like a, a, a shameful amount of television, but um, those are the ones that stick out. Well, I know your wife recently made you watch Frozen for the first time, so maybe the next time I have you on the podcast, we're going to have to talk about Elsa and Anna and the whole gang. Uh, we'll make a whole show of it, buddy. But speaking of shows as well, uh, we talked about this prior to recording. I know you're a big Seinfeld fan, and I noticed that you've used clips from the show recently on your Twitter timeline. So I'm gonna give you the big question here. I need the definitive power rankings when it comes to the main cast, Jerry, Elaine, George, and Kramer. How would that play out for you? I, I, I feel like George is probably the best character, like the one that, yeah. This is a doozy. <laughs> <laughs> well, who would be last? Let's start from the very bottom. Who do you think is the least, you know, funny, least popular character of the four? They all play just like a vital role, right? Like I think last is probably Jerry because he's clearly the worst actor of the four. And <laughs> And like, it's almost a joke at points, but like, I think there's like a one meta episode when, um, you know, Kramer wants to audition to play himself in like the show within the show. Yeah. And, and like, he's doing a line reading with Jerry or something. And he's like, no, you can't act. <laughs> and I, I thought that was just sort of like a sly nod. 
but he he also is like the straight man in a lot of ways like he is obviously like very funny and is you know one of the people who is like making jokes and it's not like he's maybe not a traditional straight man but he is sort of like in a lot of ways the the like most grounded character and the least absurd yeah so i think from that perspective he he would maybe be fourth i don't know it's it's a difficult question man it's like you know choosing between you know, my, my favorite and least favorite non-existent children. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about how about an easier one when it comes to Seinfeld? Do you have an all-time favorite episode, at least? There's a lot to choose from. I know this is also another hard one. Yeah, probably the Bizarro Jerry. I feel like that's the one that's, that, that's like, most memorable in my mind. Okay. I, I would pick my personal favorite is the Soup Nazi. Big fan of that one. That shows up on television quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, I don't... I can't say that I've actually watched an episode of Seinfeld in I don't know how long. Like they're all all seared into my brain and my memory because uh, of how often I watched that show growing up. But yeah, it's been a while since I actually watched a full episode, like probably close to a decade. Well, you used to have the box sets, right? I did. Yeah. Back when DVDs were a thing. Um, and that's <laughs> <Not anymore. laughs> like that's like what I would do when I came home from school. Like I would come home from school and watch, you know, an episode or two of mm-hmm. Seinfeld, and then do my homework <laughs> or whatever it was I was doing. I don't know. Right. Uh, good times. Yeah, the DVDs are a thing of the past. You feel old now. You know, those have become obsolete. It's just strict streaming these days. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think, and like it, it's rare, I guess, but I sort of stopped to reflect on it. But it, it's crazy to think just like how much the world has changed, even you know since we've been like teenagers you know what i mean like i've always you never as you get older like you don't measure the passage of time really because you just like are living with yourself from one second until the next (laughs) so especially these days yeah so you just sort of like take everything in stride and and then suddenly like yeah you think back and i mean like i i didn't have a cell phone until i went away to university like all high school i did not have a cell phone and like that's so weird for me to think about now yeah. Could you live without it now, right? Like, obviously not, but somehow I just did then. Like, I would make plans to go meet friends, and it's like, you just like you just had to be where you said you were going to be. Like, you couldn't text somebody and be like, hey, like, something came up, I'm not coming, or like, yeah. I'm running, you know, half an hour late. Like, you just had to make a plan and then be there in that place at that time. And I don't know how I did that, because I'm terrible when it comes to punctuality, so... <laughs> We'll we'll talk about that in a bit, actually, about your punctuality. That'll be uh, one of the questions here. But actually, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but from a piece you wrote for the score back in March, I learned that you used to call, and excuse me if I'm butchering the name here, you used to call Atlantic University sports basketball games for the Dalhousie Campus Radio in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Is that true? It's true, yeah. Dalhousie. Dalhousie. Do you have any fond memories doing play-by-play basketball? And is that something you would ever like to dip your toe into again? Yes, I have the fondest of memories of doing that. And I think that like doing the podcasting thing has sort of filled that hole in my life and, and, and sated my desire for kind of doing, <laughs> you know, the broadcasting right. side of sports media. I think... I don't know that I would ever want to get into doing uh, like play-by-play stuff like I was doing then. Um, I really enjoyed it, and I was doing it with like one of my best friends, so that made it a lot more fun. Like we just we just had a great and, and pretty ridiculous time on the air, and it was you know we didn't have a ton of listeners. I think the majority of our listeners were just like the players' parents, yeah. so it felt pretty low stakes. But but it was definitely a good experience and definitely helped me. I think 
hone my on-air chops a little bit, but it was stressful too. Like it was, you know, we'd be, we'd cover the women and the men who would always play double headers one after the other. And so that would be like four straight hours on the air basically without a break. Oh wow. And it's, it's a lot, man. Like it's a lot of talking and you're trying to sort of just like follow the game, but provide insights as you go. And you know, it was, uh, it was stressful. I, I don't know that I, I would want to get back into that, uh, but I definitely have, have great memories of doing it. And in a way, like I was writing already and I wrote sports for the Dalhousie Gazette while I was there. And uh, yeah. you know, I was in a creative writing program. So writing was always sort of part of my path, but that was a big part of my introduction, I think, into the sports media space. So I'm definitely grateful for it. And finally, Wolfon, when The Score did a feature on you in June of 2019, you were asked to come up with a movie title to describe your life, and you came up with A Little Slow, A Little Late. Two years later, Wolfon, would you like to come up with a different title for your movie, and who would you want to play you in the film? No, I think that's spot on. First of all, that's a quote <laughs> from The Wire, which you would know if you'd watch that series. Sorry. <laughs> um, but it's, yeah, I think it just describes me pretty well. Like, I, I'm a fairly laid-back person, and probably too much so, and I've definitely frustrated a lot of the people in my life with how slow I move sometimes uh, and my my tardiness has been an issue like it just I just sort of go through life in general at something of a lackadaisical pace and I've, I've tried to change and I think I've gotten better at that but it's also just like something that is uh, like deeply interwoven into the fabric of who I am like it just takes me a long time to do things and that sure. includes writing like I, I'm a really slow writer uh, I'm a slow reader like I'm just I don't I don't entirely know how to explain it because I've you know I read a lot uh, and I write a lot and you'd think that I would have gotten better at those things over time and <laughs> getting better <laughs> at those things I think you would expect to translate into doing them at a quicker pace but not so <laughs> well, whether you're a slow reader or a slow writer or not, you're always going to be Canada's Zach Lowe to me, my friend. Seriously, one of the best sports writers I've personally ever read, and I was extremely fortunate enough to work alongside you for a stretch at the score. Wolfond, thank you so much for joining me on the Walder Sportscast. I very much appreciate it. But before we sign off, let the listeners know where they can find you on the web. Uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you for that. Um, I I've always appreciated your kindness, your kind words, your support. Uh, it means a lot. And I was really glad to get a chance to do this with you. Um, to the listeners, if you're inclined, you can find me on Twitter at Joey underscore W. Uh, you can read my stuff at The Score, either on the web at thescore.com or the Score mobile app. Uh, I write NBA features there. And yeah, I mean, that's... Oh, oh, oh Pound the Rock. Yeah, you, you mentioned it off the top. Pound the Rock <laughs> is, is the, the weekly NBA podcast that I do with uh, Joe Cacharo at The Score. Uh, so you can listen to that. Subscribe, download it. I don't know. Whatever you do with, with podcasts. All that um, good stuff. <laughs> those, are, those are the places you can find me. Thanks again, Joe. And seriously, all the continued success with your writing and Pound the Rock alongside Joseph Cassaro, as I, again, butchered his name. Uh, but say hi to him for me. I definitely will, man. Uh, appreciate you. Uh, hope you're doing well. And just hope we uh, get a chance to keep in touch and hit me up anytime, man. And that was my interview with Joe Wolfond. Go give him a follow on Twitter at Joey underscore W. 
It's not the letter W, but the words double and U for clarification. And go check out his latest episode of Pound the Rock with Joseph Cacharo when they invited Sirat Sohi onto the program. Look, I'm going to call him the Zach Lowe of Canada until it sticks. And hey, when he comes back on the show, hopefully sometime soon, we'll talk about Frozen, because I think that would be absolutely hilarious. This has been episode 29 of the Walder Sportscast. Please leave a rating and review if you enjoyed the show today. Download the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Podbean, or basically anywhere at this point. And Vince Carter, if you're listening, come on the show. Let's make it happen. That's another one in the books. So as always, I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Walder Sportscast. Hit that subscribe button on iTunes and follow Chris on both Twitter and Instagram at Walder Sports.